Welcome back to the Urology Care Podcast. It is Halloween, October 31st, and as we all know, part of the fun of the Halloween holiday is telling scary stories. So we're going to do a urology version of that. I'm here with Tupper Stevens, Museum Manager of the William P. Dieter Center for Urologic History. And that's right, we are here in the William P. Dieter Center for Urologic History. It's at the American Urological Headquarters in Linthicum, Maryland, near the city of Baltimore. And today we have in front of Tupper some of the spookiest instruments in urology history that we have here on display as artifacts as part of this wonderful Center for Urologic History Museum. Tupper, I'm going to have you take us through some of these instruments, and you're going to hopefully be able to describe them for us and what they were used for at the time and maybe why they became obsolete. Maybe it'll be self-evident why they became obsolete, but um, maybe not. And you'll be able to tell us some of the stories behind these spooky instruments in your Aussie history. So what do we have in front of you right here? I'm going to talk about some instruments that are spooky. And that means, according to the dictionary, sinister in a way that causes fear and unease. And most of the people who see these instruments are pretty uneasy when they take a look at them. I'm going to start with Siviali's lithotripter. Now, this was used in the early 1800s to remove stones. Before this instrument came along, lithotomy or removal of stones was pretty much a case of cutting a hole between the scrotum and the rectum and going in as fast as you could with your fingers or maybe some forceps to pull out the stone and pack the area with cloth to let let all the blood and the urine just flow out. Well, it was a it was a pretty brutal operation. So this instrument, which is still spooky, came along soon after by and was made by a man named Jean Siviali in France. Now this instrument is it's pretty beautiful. It's a long tube that can go up the male urethra and into the bladder. It has a beautiful ivory handle, and it has a lever that controls three grabbers at the end of the instrument. Now, first, the operator puts the instrument into the urethra and into the bladder. He can't see anything. There's no anesthesia. There's no antisepsis at this time. He pulls back on the lever, and three metal grabbers come out inside the bladder. These grabbers are used to capture the stone, and the the operator tries to capture the stone without getting any part of the bladder into the equation, because that's never a good thing. So once he captures the stone, he uses a bow, and you can imagine a a violin bow, really, to turn a a wheel that makes a drill bit in between the three grabbers go around and around. And feel this, feel that, the point of this bit. It's steel. It's very, very sharp. So he uses the bow to make that... A bit go around and around into the stone 
so that he's basically drilling a bunch of holes into the stone. And he drills as many stones as he can until the stone completely falls apart and the pieces can be urinated out. Now, he has to work very quickly because, of course, this is not comfortable for the patient. But if he can't drill enough holes into the stone so that it collapses, the patient might have to come back for another visit. I can't imagine any patient being willing to do that. But he was very successful with this instrument, Siviali himself, and he claimed instead of a 25% mortality rate that was common at the time, he claimed a 3% mortality rate. So physicians soon flocked to France to learn this method. That means instead of 25% of patients dying after use, it was down to 3% of patients dying after the procedure. Yes, and Americans in particular were so amazed at this improved method that they started flocking to France to learn how to do it and to buy the instrument. But unfortunately, Americans could never really replicate his methods. And there's some speculation that the reason they could not was because Siviali practiced all the time. He practiced by passing a straight sound on himself up his own urethra. And he also used his instrument to pick nuts out of his pocket as he walked through town. The next instrument I'm going to talk about is the Desermo endoscope. Now, this is one of the very early cystoscopes, one of the early instruments that was used to see inside the bladder. It, again, is a long tube, as is so often uh, the case here, and it has a very heavy handle. And right off to the left of the handle is a, um, an addition, I guess I'd call it, that includes a vial that looks something like a pill bottle that's attached to the handle and it has an opening up above with a, it's actually a chimney is what it is. Because what goes into the vial is a combination of uh, kerosene and alcohol. And this, this mixture is lit on fire. Uh, the heat somewhat dissipates through the chimney and the light from this flame is reflected down the tube by the use of a bunch of mirrors. So this is a way of getting some light into the bladder in order to see what the problem could be inside there. But it gets really hot, even though there's a chimney in there. It's not comfortable for the patients, apparently. And um, one of the early users said, in some cases, I've found the formidable appearance of the instrument with smoke issuing from its chimney to be of sufficient terror to the timid patient to make him fidgety and anxious as to the safety of the operation that my maneuvers become difficult and exceedingly unsatisfactory. So I, even though it doesn't sound like this instrument worked very well for the patient or the operator, it was used for about 20 years to see inside the bladder. The next instrument I'm going to talk about is my favorite in the museum. Again, it's a tube, and this was used in cases of benign prostatic hyperplasia when the prostate has become enlarged and it is impeding the flow of urine from the bladder. Now, this is pretty common in older men, and it, it certainly has been a problem in mankind since as early as uh, records have been made about this problem. 
So in the 1920s in the Mayo Clinic, this instrument came out and it's called the Bumpus Cat Claw. It has within its tube, and this is a beautiful tube with an ivory tip and an ebony, ebony shaft. It is hooked up to an electrical source. And the operator inserts this again up the urethra, up close to the prostate. He pushes this metal wire and at the ivory end of the instrument, five thin wires just like cat claws come out and they are inserted into the prostatic tissue. These, these needles go straight into the prostatic tissue and then the operator zaps the tissue with electricity. Now the thought was that this would, uh, kill, it would kill the tissue and the bits of it would just slough off, leaving the, um, killing off the prostatic tissue right at the neck of the bladder so that the urine can flow freely. I don't know how well this worked particularly, but it, uh, about, um, let's say 80 years later, Physicians came out with the tuna, the transurethral needle ablation of the prostate. And honestly, that new instrument, though made of plastic and it looks much more like we're used to, it's kind of the same idea, except instead of using electricity through the needles, it uses radio waves that do, in some cases, shrink the prostatic tissue. Next instrument that I have here is called a dilator. And this comes from a time when men suffered from scar tissue inside the urethra for a variety of reasons. It could be trauma to the genitalia. It could be venereal disease, particularly in times of war. And this one has a curve, like almost an S-shaped curve. It's a beautiful metal instrument. It's got a brass dial. And it's also got a handle that turns around and around, and the brass dial moves. It has numbers on it. And at the other, the business end of the instrument, four veins, let's say, four, um, hmm, I'm not sure what you would call these, four, uh, I don't know, do you have any ideas? It almost looks like when you peel a banana and there's, you know, layers on each side that come out. It gets wider and wider. The more you turn the dial, the wider it gets. Okay. So it was used to break up the scar tissue inside the urethra. Now, our former curator, Dr. Engel, always said that this was not something that was done all at one time. You might have to come back for repeated visits, uh -huh. and they would slowly, slowly, slowly stretch the urethra and try to break up the scar tissue. I think it was extremely painful. Uh, the results were only felt for a short period of time, so you had to keep coming back for repeated visits. Now, of course, we, we did experiment with something in the 1990s called balloon dilation in urology. And again, it's, the, it's a more sanitary looking uh, instrument because it, it's plastic and the end of it Come, ends in a balloon that gets wider and wider the more uh, fluid that goes into it. 
but also that did not work very well in men. You still had to keep coming back for repeated instrumentation. Okay, now I want to introduce our final product on display for today, so to speak, our final instrument. This one looks a lot different than the other ones we had. The other ones were more, um, they were all pretty much going through the urethra. So very long, pointy instruments, all made out of like stainless steel, some bits of ivory involved as well. Um, You know, they all look mostly the same transurethral instruments, meaning they go through the urethra. This last product on this Halloween edition of the Urology Care Podcast, this last one I'm going to introduce looks a lot different than the other four or so products we've just talked about. This one is almost like a, it's like a ring and it has shark teeth looking like literally like shark teeth around it. A ring with shark teeth, very jagged blades. Please, what was this used for? And um, I'm going to turn the mic over to you. This came from a time in the early 1900s. This ring. This ring called a spermatorrhea ring. Also known as the? Anti-masturbation ring. The early 1900s, there was a huge outcry in America that really, I will say, started in Europe, Victorian England to be precise, where there was this outcry against masturbation. They decided that it was terrible for you, it would make you weak, it would make you blind, it would make you crazy, it would make you all the things that you've heard about in the jokes. Well, the reason is because people at that time really did not understand orgasm. And they assumed that you would not recover from some of these effects. It would make you depraved and weak. And uh, so they decided that this needed to be stopped in all cases at all times. And even doctors wrote articles and books about how dangerous masturbation was. So in the 19, early 1900s, let's say 1920s, these were sold in the Sears catalog for a quarter. And you were supposed to put it on your little boy's penis before he went to sleep at night. And if he got a nocturnal erection, when the sides of the penis hit these spikes here, well, that would be the end of that. Now, I cannot say that these were sold widely. I don't know. We seem to have the only one I know about in America, although the Wellcome Trust in England does have three in their collection. So this always occasions a lot of interest and a little bit of humor, although seriously, it's not humorous. It's pretty spooky, and it itself does cause fear and unease in people who see it. Now, was this available in the Sears and Roebuck catalog of the day? Yes, it was. Now, for those who may not be familiar with what Sears is, depending probably on how old you are, this is a department store that was existing in America at this time. It's still around, but not nearly as big a presence as it once had. Well, it was the only mail-order catalog that was available back in the early 1900s, so people ordered things through this catalog. Very mainstream, very well-known catalog that people had. This was one of their featured products. Yes, it was. Wow. And for people that want to learn more about this, what's it called one more time? A spermatorrhea ring. Now, some of the instruments we covered today did include electricity, most notably the cat claw here, the um, 
Bumpus Catclaw. So can you just tell us a little bit about the role of electricity in urologic instruments? It seems like once electricity was invented, um, a lot of the tools of urology seem to change and maybe become less spooky in some instances. And then again, more spooky in other instances. Can you tell us a little bit about the role of the invention of electricity in these urologic instruments? Electricity made a lot of things possible that were not possible before. Certainly the Desermo endoscope, that used fire to cause the light, to create the light. Well, once electricity came along and they could use that to heat up wires that would allow them to see inside the bladder and to make little tiny light bulbs that went onto the end of the cystoscope and bulbs that could be cool enough to use so the patients weren't miserable from the heat. That made a huge difference in the world. Uh, the Bumpus cat paw, yes, that does use electricity. And in many cases, what started out as a mechanical way of shaving off prostatic tissue turned into a case of using electricity to shave it off. Now we use things like laser. So we, it's definitely a progression along that, uh, along the path and there's nothing that medicine uses, well, maybe not nothing, but there's certainly not much that medicine does today that doesn't use electricity. Mm -hmm. It's been a huge benefit to mankind. For people that are interested in seeing these instruments in person and taking all this history in, uh, I know you offer tours, and it is open to the general public here in Linthicum, Maryland, outside of Baltimore, near BWI Airport, if you're in the area. So what do folks need to know to learn more about this wonderful museum we have here at the AUA? Because it is a specialized museum focused on urology, I do think it's better for people who don't know a lot about it to get a tour. I can give tours to people. The museum is open Monday through Friday during business hours. Certainly things can be arranged at other times. You would probably want to call me at 410-689-3785 or email me at tstevens at auanet.org. They can also visit our website for the museum, and that's www.urologichistory.museum. Tupper, any other final thoughts before we wrap up today? I hope you have a great Halloween. <laughs> Happy Halloween, everybody. This podcast has been brought to you by the Urology Care Foundation, the official foundation of the American Urological Association. For more information on today's topic and for all things urology health, visit urologyhealth.org. That's urologyhealth.org.